Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do a companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net if you have suggestions for topics guests and other ideas please send them to info@scientificsense.com and i can be reached at gil@epen.info My guest today is Professor Kenneth Pomeranz, who is Professor of Modern Chinese History at the University of Chicago. Welcome, Ken. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Yeah, thanks for doing this. So uh, I, I want our conversation sort of go through your book, The Great Divergence. Um, I skimmed it, Ken. I found it extremely interesting. I know nothing about history, uh, as I mentioned. Um, but i found it extremely interesting um from a variety of angles uh, and so i want to start with your sort of the introductory chapter in the book comparisons connections and narratives mm-hmm. of european economic development as i mentioned ken i had uh, joel mokier from northwestern on the program last year we talked about talked about industrial um revolution uh england's contribution to innovation and all those things um i i i picked up that you have a slightly different view as to how these things evolved over time right so you know where where i think joel and i would agree is that if you look at not aggregate growth but per capita growth the graph looks very much like the old fashioned hockey stick right per capita growth is very very low for centuries and centuries in fact quite possibly for millennia though so the further you go back the more unreliable our estimates are and then sometime in the late 18th century in really just one or two places at first basically britain and the netherlands it starts to take off quite dramatically a bunch of other places come on board over the course of the 19th and the 20th century and now of course we've had two centuries of sustained per capita growth over not the whole world but large portions of the world 
which is simply unprecedented in human history. So the standard story, and I think at least in this respect, Joel is part of the standard story, would say that's because sometime in the 18th century, the Europeans figured out how to do a whole bunch of things better. And the roots of that betterness go way, way back, right? They only manifest themselves decisively in the 18th century, but they have very, very deep roots. Um, so Joel would, would point to the Greek roots of Western natural science. Some other people would talk, point to the Roman roots of Western property law, various possibilities. But in each case, the story is Europe is really, Europe is on a better track than just about any place else in the world from way, way back. And then when it takes off in the late 18th century, or some people would say a little bit earlier or a little bit later than that, that's essentially self-generated, internally generated growth. The rest of the world does not play a significant part in the story. What I would say is to that is a few things. One is that if as late as the mid 18th century, there's not much difference between living standards in Europe and certain other parts of the world, then the burden of proof should be on the people who say, oh, Europe was already so, so different that it was decisively launched on a different path. If it was, and that different path goes back hundreds or even thousands of years, why are living standards still pretty much the same as, say, in East Asia as late as the mid-18th century? That's not to say that there aren't some deep roots of European success, but that we have to think of the divergence as being relatively late and relatively sudden. It's not something that's been building for hundreds of years. And I think you can make a pretty good case that the idea that Europe was already significantly better off in, say, the 1600s or 1700s is based on a bit of an optical illusion. It's based largely on the fact that we compile economic statistics based on the borders of modern nations. And so let's say England is certainly better off on average than China, but China is more comparable both in size, in population, and in internal diversity to all of Europe, not to England. And if you look at, say, the Yangtze Delta region, which by a generous definition has 30 million people in the mid 18th century, and thus is significantly bit bigger than Britain and Holland put together. And you ask, what are its living standards? What's its degree of commercialization? It looks an awful lot like Britain. It's very, very close. And so my argument would be that you can't do China and England. You can do the Yangtze Delta and England, and they're roughly comparable. 
or you can do China and all of Europe. And then you have, you know, just as Europe has England and it has the Balkans, China has the Yangtze Delta and it has Gansu. And these differences within these regions are significantly more important than the ones between them. Yeah, I mean, this is a really important insight for me, uh, Ken. Um, and so the, the, the scale problem, so to speak. So mm -hmm. you, you take China and you say you compare its GDP per capita, GDP overall to mm -hmm. something else. You're averaging a very large number of provinces, large right. number of people. Mm -hmm. And when you average things, you get different numbers. And I know this in <laughs> having uh, grown up in India, of course. which is uh, a patchwork of at least 26 different countries. Right. And uh, have very different uh, standards of living, very different mm -hmm. um, expectations almost, religions and all sorts right. of things, right? And so when you average in the macro, you tend to make lot tend to make wrong decisions, it looks like, right? I mean, that is that's insight I garnered from this. Right. And I, I would add that, you know, I've made the case for China because it's the area that I know the best, where I can read the sources in the original language, etc. I think it's perfectly possible that if you were to break out the data for, say, Gujarat or Bengal in the 18th century, you might well find something similar right, a sub-region that's doing pretty well um, and that would be comparable to core regions elsewhere in the world, but is submerged in this much larger entity that we compute averages across, when, as you've just pointed out, computing averages across that even in the 21st century is dubious. In the 18th century, it's really dubious. Right. Yeah, so, um, so, so going back to China and the Europe comparison, mm -hmm. um, so just rewind time back a little bit. So 1700s, uh, if you go back to China, so what do we find there in this sort of disparity between GDP per capita, wealth, um, and all that stuff. So, so what do you, what do we find in China in the 1700s? Okay, so I would argue that what we find in China is we find one or two core regions, and above all, the Yangtze Delta, which is, you know, roughly think of a semicircle around contemporary Shanghai, extending maybe I don't know, maybe about a hundred miles out, a little bit more. Um, and in those core areas, you have very dense population, high degrees of commercialization, extremely productive agriculture. And interestingly enough, we used to think it was very productive by land area, everybody agrees on that, but not very productive in terms of labor productivity. And then it turns out that if you go back and you look at the numbers, it's actually extremely productive in terms of labor productivity too. Um, and this is not just my insight. And 
Bob Allen, who's one of the outstanding British economic historians, did a kind of set of simulations where basically he plugged the numbers that we had both for the Yangtze Delta and for the English Midlands into an Excel spreadsheet. And he got comparable agricultural earnings per day for labor in as late as 1820, in which the Yangtze Delta is at about 90% of British levels. And that's 1820, when the Industrial Revolution has already begun to suck a lot of extra labor out of the English countryside. So it certainly suggests that two or three generations before that, my argument that per capita labor productivity is actually very, very similar is probably right. So anyway, you have this very commercialized area, lots and lots of handicraft industry, um, lots of commerce. Um, actually, since this book was written, in fact, just in the last couple of years, um, one of my students has done a bunch of new research, which suggests that interest rates were much lower than we thought, which suggests that the financial set system works better than we used to think. Um, you have all of these things, but you do not get an industrial big bang. You don't get a shift to coal. Um, and I would argue that at least part of the reason for that is a very simple one. China has plenty of coal, but it's in the wrong place. Most of it is up in the Northwest. It's hundreds of landlocked miles, not only from the main center of, of demand, these extremely densely populated and therefore heavily deforested areas. But that also means it's, it's hundreds of landlocked miles away from where the really skilled artisans are who might have tinkered around and solved some of your problems. Um, so you don't get... Sorry, Ken. So, so that is a, that's an important thing. So, the, so China had coal. Mm -hmm. But it's away from where it could be used, mm -hmm. and transportation transportation costs were high, and hence it wasn't that useful. Is that the way to think about it? More or less, yeah. Um, and you know, anywhere in the world, prior to the nineteenth century, the cost of energy supplies is basically the cost of moving them. Um, you know, it's a it's a chicken and egg problem. Once you get a steam engine and you either put it on a boat or you put it on wheels and call it a railroad, then you can move your energy supplies from anywhere. But prior to that, it's very difficult. Um, and in Europe, as well as in China, the cost of coal, for instance, doubles within, I think, can't remember the number exactly, but it's something like 25 miles of overland transport doubles the cost. Um, Britain is lucky in that a lot of its coal doesn't have to move very far overland. It's right near either a river or a coast. China is not. So just that that simple fact that there was a larger distance for the fuel to travel. Mm -hmm. made a big difference between these two systems. Right. right, and this is also, I would say, 
you have to see this not only as a static difference, but as a difference that has dynamic results. Um, so, you know, again, to go back to Joel Mokir for a minute, Joel's basic answer to the question why Europe is the Europeans were better at innovation, particularly technological innovation. What I want to say is that you have to look not only at how much do you innovate, but what innovations make sense to pursue. And that comes down in part to factor prices. So let me give you an extreme, but I think very, well, two extreme, but I think very relevant examples, and they both concern coal. So it just so happens that for the year 1704, we have an incredibly detailed set of price reports from an English East India Company ship that was docked in Canton on the southeast coast of China for months. So we know what they paid for eggs, we know what they paid for guys to come and caulk the ship, you name it. And you can put together a reasonably good wage price index for that particular year. And we find something very interesting. So silver denominated wages are much, much higher in London than they are in, in Canton. So are living costs. So, so if, if, again, I don't have the figures on the top of my head, but it's something like silver wages are almost four times as high in London. But so is the cost of basic food, which is, of course, the major component of the consumer market basket of all poor people, especially in the 18th century. And, you know, you can play around, you crunch the numbers, real wages come out almost identical. It's like Silicon Valley and Kansas City. Yeah, but to the nth degree. <laughs> right? But there's a really interesting exception to this, which is that the price of charcoal happens to be much higher, not only in real terms, but in nominal terms in Guangzhou than it is in London. And so if you think about charcoal as the price of heat energy and food prices as basically the price of muscle energy, the ratio between those two prices, between Guangdong and London, is something on the order of 20 to one, even though real wages are comparable. So imagine yourself as an innovator. If you're sitting in London, it is well worth your time to think about a way in which you might use heat energy to substitute for muscle energy. Hmm. If you're sitting in Guangzhou, you have no incentive. Such a thing, right? Why would you want to find a way to use more of a scarce thing to substitute for a plentiful thing? Now let me give you the other side of that same story, again, talking in terms of factor prices. So the original Newcomen steam engine from the late 1600s is so inefficient that it does about seven calories worth of work 
for every thousand calories of energy it burns. So it's a ratio of you know, 0.7% of the fuel turns into useful work. It's astonishingly wasteful. It's also quite dangerous. Well, where would you use such a thing? Only at a place where fuel is basically free. Hmm. Where is fuel basically free? At, at the, the mine. Of the mine. <laughs> the cost of the fuel, as I said before, is basically the cost of transporting it. And so-called small coals in particular are just not worth shipping. So the Newcomen steam engine, despite the fact that it's incredibly wasteful, is worth using at a couple of key locations in Britain. And of course, if it's worth using, it's also worth tinkering with and improving. Now, that doesn't guarantee that 75 years later, you're going to get walked and a much better steam engine, right? I'm, my mo model is not deterministic, right? There's a place for Watt's individual genius. But it sure as heck is more likely that you get that breakthrough in factor prices than Chinese ones. So the, the steam engine used at the mines, it's basically to, to pump water. Uh, mines used to flood. Right, so if the pump water out, it was that the reason? Yes, that's the main reason. And of course, the, dig, the deeper you have to dig, the worse the flooding problem gets, and the more you have to pull, the more energy you have to use to pull the water up. In fact, um, Michael Flynn, who wrote this kind of classic multi-volume history of English coal mining, um, probably 50 years ago now, maybe even more, once calculated that had you not gotten the steam engine under control, British coal production would have had to stagnate at about the 1730 level because you simply, the price of feeding the horses who were running the pumps would have just gone out of sight. Instead of stagnating at that level, it multiplies something like tenfold over the next three generations. So many orders of magnitude. So you have a chapter in here, problems with the Europe-centric stories, mm -hmm. uh, building a more inclusive story. Um, so as I mentioned, uh, Ken, you know, after having grown up in India and coming to the US, I have certain expectations of how things evolved. Mm -hmm. Um, but you're arguing, I think, in the book that there are there are a lot. It's a it's a multifactorial, uncertain problem. Right. That's not that clear. Exactly. <laughs> That's the things they want. Right? Get to some of the other factors in a moment. Right. But right, I think again, part of the problem is, you know, history does not allow, except in very rare, lucky cases for the kinds of experimental tests that natural scientists can do, right? The only real test we have is, let's look at all the evidence we have, what patterns do we have that seem to make sense? And one problem with that is that you often wind up seeing the pattern that you're trained to look for, right? So if, 
ever since the late 19th century, when Europe truly was richer, more powerful, etc., than any place else on earth, what you're looking for is the explanation of that remarkably important fact. And so you're going to keep finding patterns that lead to that outcome. And it's not that some of those patterns aren't there, but it causes you to miss other patterns that were also there and that either could have led to other things or even eventually did, just maybe not quite as fast. Um, so, you know, it's, it's easy, for instance, to look at the fact that in Britain, in particular, and part, other parts of Europe too, though not all parts of Europe, law, law um, related to commercial contracts made it easier to collect from a defaulting debtor than it did in China. And I think that's basically, certainly for Britain, that's true. And so it's easy to tell a story where you say, aha, it's easier to collect from a defaulting debtor. Consequently, risk premia are going to be lower. Consequently, capital is going to be cheaper. Consequently, this is a better place for economic growth. There might be some truth to that. But at the same time, consider the fact that up until all the way into the early 20th century, most land in Britain was locked up in entail, which made it actually very hard to transfer land to the people who would use it most productively, right? Only certain families could hold on to the land. It wasn't free market. Right, so why is it, why do we point to the superior, perhaps, English capital market and say, aha, they're, they're ahead already, whereas we don't talk about the much freer Chinese land market, even though agriculture was the biggest sector of the economy for hundreds of years, and say, aha, the Chinese are ahead. Yeah, so, so the exposed observations that we make with a set of biases um, allows us to only look at certain things because we miss other things, right? right? And so this idea that England and Western Europe had an economic system that was really efficient, free, and and growing, uh, it's not it's not that clear if that's the case, right? I mean, in right. comparison, it appears inferior in some ways. Right. Not in all ways, but in some ways. And, you know, really all I'm saying is that as late as the mid-18th century, maybe even the late 18th century, though I think things start to slide, it's not at all clear on balance which place has 
the um, the system that's more conducive to growth. We really only know with the benefit of hindsight. Um, and that's partly because just nobody in the 17th or 18th century is imagining a world of very, very high per capita energy use and industrial production becoming far more important than agriculture. I mean, you, know, you read the wealth of nations, right? And Adam Smith is an awfully smart guy, and that's an awfully long book. <laughs> and yet, you know, the famous example of the pin factory, which everybody loves to quote, is really just a couple of pages. And it's the only real discussion of industry in the whole book. Mm. Why? Because Smith imagined a future world that would look like the present. And the present was a world in which what counted was agriculture and commerce. Yeah. I mean, we are going through a phase of artificial intelligence, as you know. So designing anything based on the status quo is, is dangerous. Right. <laughs> Uh, in terms of human capital on products and and all of that, right? So, 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 so the part two of the book, uh, can you talk about from new ethos to new economy, consumption, investment, and capitalism, mm -hmm. uh, especially the luxury consumption and the rise of capitalism? Could you talk a bit about that? Yeah, okay. So here too, um, there are, I would say two European stories that we have that try to explain what's different about Europe and causes it to shoot ahead that are related with to consumption. One, which is an old story, um, really linked, I think, to, well, in the early 20th century to someone like Werner Sambar in Germany but in many ways going all the way back to Smith, is an argument that says it's the taste for luxury that incentivizes rich people in Europe to begin deploying their assets more productively. Because mm. after all, a guy who has a lot of wealth to start with, he doesn't have to maximize, he can satisfy. Why would he go to the hard work and make the tough managerial decisions to maximize? He's got to want something. And so Smith's story is, well, what he wants is luxury. And Smith traces, though you know, he didn't have any real empirical evidence, but he kind of spins out a story about how the greater availability of certain kinds of luxuries incentivize you know old feudal lords and so forth to get with the program you know, to either use the either they use their assets more effectively or they fall into debt trying to keep up with the consumption of other people who do use their assets effectively and they eventually use those lose those assets and they go to people who can deploy them more effectively right? and so it fits right into a classic smith style argument that private vice leads to public virtue, right? It's not that these guys are trying to be benefactors of mankind. They just want 
you know, that diamond or that painting or whatever. And in pursuit of it, they're led to use their assets more effectively. But, but luxury uh, had different definitions, I would imagine, in different part of the world. At sure, that time, right? exactly. And so part of what I try to show in that chapter is that you have a similar rise of luxury consumption for elites in some other parts of the world too. And one of the really interesting indicators of this, so if you think about why do people want a diamond? Or why do they want a shirt that says Calvin Klein on it, <laughs> but actually doesn't, doesn't last any longer or keep you any warmer than a similar shirt that doesn't say Calvin Klein, right? They want those things for status. And so what you're interested in and then as a historian is to what extent is it possible, regardless of how you're born, to obtain status by purchasing the right things in a given society? And you can trace in Europe, you know, starting sometime in the Renaissance for the most part, but again, varying across the continent to significant degrees, a decline in what are called um, sumptuary laws, laws that said, you are not allowed to consume this thing unless you are of this status. If you're not noble born, we don't care that you can afford a carriage of this size. You're not allowed to have one, right? And you watch those laws gradually fall away so that you go from a society in which status determines what you're allowed to consume to a society in which, to a significant extent, what you consume determines your status. Okay. So that's a great story. The problem with that story for explaining Europe is that you could see exactly the same thing happening in China, in Japan, and at least to some extent in India, and for all I know elsewhere as well. One of the really interesting indicators of this is that as early as the late 1400s, you find books being published in China that are essentially say, if you're going to purchase art, here's how to buy art and not get conned. Mm. And here's how to display the art so that you look like you're tasteful and don't look like some, you know, brash, you know, wealthy country bumpkin. Well, the only reason you need a book like that, the only reason a book like that would have a market is if there are people who have both the ability and the desire to purchase art but weren't born into the kinds of families where their father or their uncle could explain to them, here's how you buy art hmm. and here's how you display it, right? The existence of those books is a sign of a certain amount of social mobility. The same way that in our own age, the existence of consultants who tell very wealthy people how to buy art or for more ordinary people, the existence of a book like Dress for Success, 
right, which is explicitly targeted at the person who has the smarts to become, let's say, a corporate executive, but didn't grow up around corporate executives and you know, might wear the wrong thing to the interview. <laughs> yeah. Exactly, right? That's why that book has a market, because there's a certain amount of social mobility in our society. So it's sort of a, there was a guidebook to become successfully climb the status ladder, so to exactly. speak. Exactly. So that, you know, you don't get caught out. Right. And so the existence of books like that indicates that you had a fair amount. I mean, you know, there's not a huge amount of mobility into the elite in any of these societies. But I think a good case can be made that there's as much in China as there is in Europe. And again, it's you know, worth noting here, China, for the most part, doesn't have a hereditary aristocracy. Hmm. That makes a big difference. Um, so that's that's one side of the consumption argument. The other, which I think is in some ways even more interesting, at least to me, is what you might call ordinary luxuries. So <coughs> in if you look in, say, okay, if you look at Europe right after the Black Death, right, labor is temporarily scarce. So wages are quite high in long run perspective. What do artisans do? Well, there's a fair amount of evidence to suggest that one of the things artisans do is they work shorter work weeks. Right, that what they choose to consume as their wages go up is they choose to consume more leisure. Right. Right. Whereas our expectation in the modern world is that as wages go up, people will commit more hours to the paid labor force, right? That the guy who doesn't want to work an extra 10 hours for 20 bucks an hour might well work the extra 10 hours if you pay him time and a half for overtime. Right? I mean, it, it's really puzzling, isn't it? I mean, the, the natural optimization scheme would be to optimize leisure against wealth or earnings. Right. But we don't see that in the modern world, as you say. It, mm -hmm. It's like we run around with like chickens with their head cut off. Exactly. Till they till they drop down dead. I mean, that, that's what we see in the modern world. So, 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 how did we make this transition? That's the that's the sixty four dollar question. <laughs> yeah. um, and again, on the European side, I think one of the most persuasive accounts comes from a former prof retired professor now at Berkeley named Jan de Vries. And he calls it the industrious revolution, not industrial, but industrious. Yeah. And basically his argument is that the proliferation of little luxuries. So, you know, if the only thing you could buy with your money is a roof to put over your head and basic calories, right? You're going to stop working because it doesn't make you feel any better to eat 5,000 calories a day than 2,000. In fact, it makes you feel worse after a while. 
But if you have iPhone 13, that's a different story. Right. Or in the early modern world, if you can get more meat, if you can get sugar, which had previously been a rare luxury in Europe and begins to spread in the 16th and 17th centuries and then really takes off in the 18th century when it becomes cheap because of slave plantations in the Americas. Um, tobacco, coffee, lots and lots of things come online that trickle down to the working class. They're luxuries that you can buy in small increments. And they too are status markers, right? You know, to be able to go into the cafe and buy your coffee, to be able to you know, buy enough sugar to have fancy treats on the table, or at least to have fancy treats at your daughter's wedding or something, right? These things matter. And so, I mean, I'm oversimplifying Teresa's argument in many ways, but basically what he says is that starting, again, in England and Holland mostly, what you see in Europe is that a combination of the availability of some of these new goods and a more efficient market that enables you to exchange your labor for those goods. So an expansion, expansion of the choices, the choice set right. you have. Right. And as you say, it's incrementally, it is in small doses, right? Um, so if I have an objective, so human homo sapiens, I would imagine had an objective function that's fairly simplistic for 200,000 years, food, shelter, and sex. And then last 5,000 years, you added up all these apps mm -hmm. <laughs> on top of that fundamental requirement. And then you are basically chasing these apps in terms of luxury consumption. I mean, yes and no. See, one place where I differ with you is I don't think that our, um, our needs or wants were ever quite so simple. Because what we want is not just food. We want the type of food that our particular society tells us is appropriate for a person of our station, right? So, you know, I, I would say one of the few true human universals is that every human society makes rules that in a strictly utilitarian sense make no sense, right? Yeah. Every society has some forbidden foods. Every society has some prestige foods. It's not always clear that those prestige foods are better for you or taste better or whatever. But through whatever mechanism, they become associated with status. Hmm. Right? I mean... Status was fundamental right from the beginning. Yeah. Right. And once, and once, and obviously the same, the same is true with sex, right? Um, and I don't think there is any society anywhere, I'm pretty sure, that says anybody can mate with anybody they feel like, right? Every society's rules about who you can and can't mate with are different. 
But the one thing that there never is is a society that just says, hey, it's a free-for-all, <laughs> right? And different mating choices, again, both you're, they're both constrained by status. High-status people have options that other people don't. And they also confer status, right? To be linked with the right man or woman makes you a higher-status individual. So I, I would differ a little with the idea that things used to be simple. But be that as it may, the, the other point you make, I think, is exactly right. That what happens in the early modern period is you have a whole bunch of new choices. Not, not so coincidentally, a bunch of those choices are also not only confer status, but they're at least somewhat addictive. Right, sugar, coffee, tea, tobacco, um, alcohol. I mean, alcohol isn't new, but um, so once you get onto it, um, it's not just status; it's almost like a perpetuating a requirement. Right. Um, right. That, that sort of holds you down, so to speak. Right. And so again, you know what? What I would say is, I think Devries is basically right in saying that you have to look at this consumption side to understand how we get to a modern world in which people are willing to contribute more and more and more labor to the market, even when you might think they'd be tempted to stop. Where I think he's, I won't say wrong, but limited, is in, in thinking that's only happening in England and Holland. Hmm. And I think if you go back again, go to the Yangtze Delta, um, it's very hard to get an estimate of sugar consumption, but we know it's growing. And I did some very crude estimates that suggest it's comparable to almost any place in Europe. Um, maybe not quite as high as England, which has a real sweet tooth, but very, very high. As late as the, yeah. Yeah, as late as the 1780s, the British mission, or it's actually the early 1790s, that comes to China to congratulate the Chinese emperor on his 80th birthday in 1793, they have to travel through the countryside to get to Beijing, and we have their diaries. They are blown away by how much people smoke. Mm. They keep talking about how you know, children two feet high are smoking. <laughs> they can't believe it. Um, you know, another thing that changes is that clearly cloth consumption is going up. And again, I would say our data is pretty bad, but to the extent that we have it, it suggests that the richer parts of China are keeping up with the richer parts of Europe. And if you think about the 20th century and 20th century development economists, what did they usually point to as the first signs that a country was beginning to become more prosperous. The two things they usually looked at were non-grain foods mm. and cloth. Yeah. And so, you know, there you have it. Um, so I think that, you know, someone like De Vries is probably broadly right theoretically and just didn't look broadly enough empirically. Right. Once you do, you know, what all of this keeps coming back to is 
if so many things are similar, then we need a new explanation for the sudden discontinuity mm. of the late 18th century. And I think, you know, that is a great deal of that is fossil fuels on the one hand, and it's something we haven't talked about yet, which is the Americas on the other hand. Yeah, I will talk a bit about that, Ken. So, so one advantage England had was, was America, right? Mm-hmm. And so, so how did that affect their progression? Okay, so if you take as plausible this argument in which there are a bunch of fairly rich places around the world and they have high population densities, they have lots of commercialization, which makes their economies more efficient, they have highly developed handicraft industries, but they don't, none of them yet has the industrial big bang. What all of them are going to face is difficulty in procuring for themselves enough of certain products that are land intensive. Because hmm. the, the, the fundamental characteristic of a pre-industrial world is that basically everything comes from plant growth. Food, clothing fiber, building materials in the form of timber, and energy, either in the form of muscles that have to be fed with food, or um, wood, which comes from trees. So every, every acre that is growing food right, is an acre that's not providing timber and vice versa, or not providing um, clothing fiber or whatever. And so the areas that are both most densely populated and relatively speaking, most prosperous, meaning they consume the most per capita, are going to be, going to have a great deal of difficulty being self-sufficient in one or more of those land-intensive goods. So how do you get those land-intensive goods? Well, you trade for them, right? You trade for them with some place that's less densely populated, right? And therefore is more likely to have, let's say, a lot of timber that they can float down the river to you. I can. Or, you know, high land to labor ratios, which enable them to export a fair amount of grain or whatever. And this too, I think, if you look around in the 18th century, you see all sorts of places doing that, right? The Netherlands is getting grain from the Baltic states. Um, England is getting its timber from Scandinavia. The Yangtze Delta is getting about a quarter of its rice and almost all of its timber from upstream on the Yangtze River hundreds of miles away. So everybody's doing it. It's natural in some sense. It's also limited, right? In a world of high transport costs, that's one barrier. But there are also institutional barriers, right? Because if you have relatively free markets prevailing, which I would argue was the case in China, 
then what happens as demand for rice from the middle Yangtze Valley spikes in order to feed the lower Yangtze Valley? Price goes up. The price goes up. Also, migrants move. Migrants looking for farmland or for opportunity go to the middle Yangtze. Its population density begins to rise. There's no patent protection to prevent those people in the middle Yangtze from starting to make the same cloth that the people in the lower Yangtze make. Um, maybe it wasn't worth it for them at first when it was so sparsely populated, but once the population is pretty dense, sure, why not? Um, and so over time, you can trace a process in which price of manufactured goods relative to raw materials begins to fall, right? And it becomes harder and harder, therefore, for a place like the Lower Yangtze to keep indefinitely expanding, right? It runs into import substitution in its peripheries. Um, terms of trade move against it. Things level off. So, so acquiring land then, acquiring surface area becomes sort of a strategic intent? Yeah, I mean, it's not always clear how fully thought out this was, but if you acquire enormous quantities of land and you acquire enormous quantities of land and impose on that territory, a system that gives them incentives to keep exporting, then you're in business, right? I mean, you don't, from one perspective, you could have imagined, let's say, the Pennsylvania Grain Belt, or better yet, the South Carolina um, rice country, becoming like the rice country in Hunan in China, right? Population begins to rise, they consume more of their own rice, they make more of their own handicraft manufacturers, right? They become not autarkic, but closer to autarkic mm. and less of an asset to the mother country. That is what I would argue is what happens with most of the peripheries in China. The Europeans don't leave things to chance. Right. They impose a set of colonial monopolies um, in some places, notably the Circum-Caribbean region. They create a slave system, which means that, you know, something like 25% of Brazil's exports, for instance, go simply to pay the cost of importing slaves, right? Because, I mean, slaves are obviously human beings, but from the point of view of the master, they're also capital goods, rather expensive capital goods. And if you have to keep buying more capital goods to expand your production, and they come from abroad, you have to keep exporting. So, so for the Europeans, this, this was sort of a deliberate, I don't know what the right term would be, but economic system that they managed very closely. Um, and so it's not just acquiring something, but also keeping it 
in such a way that it's actually replenishing the mothership. Right. Now, I don't think that most European leaders understood this in the terms that I'm describing. I think they understood it more in terms of bringing in economic profit as measured in silver and gold that they could spend mostly on their militaries. That is what states mostly spent on. But I do think there is a very conscious effort to manage the peripheries for the benefit of the core. And that did include certainly awareness of certain specific re, um, resources, right? Whether it's England insisting that the tall trees in New England and Quebec have to be made available for ship's masts or you know, various other things. Um, certainly they're aware of some resources that they cannot produce well at home. And they want to make sure that their peripheries specialize in exporting those things. The Qing Dynasty doesn't think that way for a variety of reasons. Is it a cultural? Excuse me. Cultural nuance. I'm sorry. Could is it sort of a cultural nuance we're seeing there, or what is what? what why is it different? I, I mean, I think there are a bunch of reasons, but one is that the European states are locked in more or less perpetual conflict with the military conflict with each other and that's very expensive and so they are constantly looking for ways to pad revenue which drives them into partnerships with colonial development companies merchants etc Right. Um, that's that's what the empire is for, from their point of view. The Qing, once they've dealt with the Mongols, look out along the world where they see no peers. They see no need to ratchet up their military spending year after year after year after year. They and they think. When they think of what's, what do we need to do to stay in power, they are just as concerned with fending off internal rebellion as they are with fending off foreign invasion. And how do you do that? Well, you keep spending rel and taxes relatively low. Within the constraints of that low spending, you provide a certain amount of safety net. So the Qing are, for instance, very good at delivering famine relief when the crops fail. Um, you're thinking, and rather than prioritizing your core, you, know, you don't need to worry much about the Yangtze Delta. The Yangtze Delta is not going to become impoverished. What you're worried about are some of these poorer regions on the ecological margins that are much more likely to have a crisis and therefore a rebellion. And so far from having them pump as much wealth as possible 
into the Yagza Delta, you're asking, how can I take some of the surplus from the Yagza Delta and stabilize the places that I'm worried about? Sort of a risk management, risk management process. Um, yeah, so yeah. It's sort of two different equilibria here, right? So you could go in one path and say, I'm going to be strong wars or whatever. I'm going to, I'm going to dominate whatever mm-hmm. I'm going to capture and, and extract maximum tactical utility mm-hmm. from that capture. And the other equilibria is something like sort of a strategic equilibrium that says, I have to look at the entire system and right. manage the risk of that system failing in right. some way, right? Right. And you know, there, are, there are a lot of things that go into this, right? I mean, the so for the European empires, those colonies are on the other, most of them are on the other side of an ocean, right? Discontented Jamaica is a problem, but nobody from Jamaica is going to march into London. Discontented Northwest China, which is ecologically marginal, there's no natural barrier between there and Beijing. Right, so there are those kinds of issues as well. Um, and I think there are also, right word, you know, there, there are ideological and normative issues as well. I mean, the, the Chinese ideal of statecraft going way, way back emphasizes minimizing the burden on the people. Now, I'm not going to say that that isn't often honored in the breach, right? I mean, there are all sorts of horrible exploitative Chinese regimes in, in history. But people, you know, right down into the late 19th century continue to quote these texts that say, you know, what we want is something like a night watchman state. Right? We want to be able to keep order. Right? We want people to be secure in their homes and in their property and all of that. But we also, we don't want to tax them all that much. And we don't need to. Sort of a utilitarian... Is that in some ways, I would say, the Qing state is more Smithian than most European states were in the 18th century. And but what gets you across the the hump from Smith's style of growth, right? Which again is based on efficient exploitation of division of labor, et cetera, et cetera, but isn't about radical increases in energy intensity and capital intensity. Mm. Right? Smithian growth works in a whole bunch of places. Ironically, Northwestern Europe gets across the hump into a different kind of world, partly because they have a state that isn't all that Smithian, right? The British are the, probably the most heavily taxed people in the world in the late 18th and early 19th century. Their government is certainly very warlike, right? Smith himself is furious. At, they're full of colonial monopolies and all the other things that Smith railed against. 
And yet those things, though not efficient in a static sense, turned out to have a very important impact, I would argue, on Britain's ability to get over this resource constraint hump mm. and find ways to keep the resources flowing in, even as the core turned more and more to manufacturing. Right? And in the 19th century, you get this amazing phenomenon of the most rapid population increase in Britain's history, plus the highest levels of growth in per capita consumption in Britain's history up to that point. How are you able to manage all of that at the same time? Well, it's got to be that resources are coming from elsewhere. Right. And some of that, of course, is that you, yes, Joel Mokir is right. You develop new technologies that enable you to produce things cheaply that pay for those resources. But it's not only that. It's also that you've set up this political economy that cranks out the resources and brings them to Britain even before Britain really is the workshop of the world even before you need it. So it, it is sort of a, a strategic imperative, right? Um, you go out and you capture. I mean, I, I hear, you know, a lot of Americans complain about the Chinese mm -hmm. going out to Africa and uh, uh, sort of, uh, you know, taking contracts on mines and so on. Um, and I say, I mean, this is what we have done. <laughs> Right. Most, of, most, of our, most of our life. Right. Uh, so why are you complaining about it now? Yeah. You know, it's, it's one of those things where you don't know actually if it's going to turn out to be a good move or not, right? If, if 30 years from now there is no worldwide shortage of grain, some of these Chinese who bought up long-term leases on farmland are going to look kind of stupid. <laughs> On the other hand, if, you know, we have massive drought in Australia and it ceases to be a major grain exporter or 15 other horrible scenarios that we can imagine and demand for protein in, you know, the current third world continues to grow, then the guy who locked in a long-term lease on farmland is going to look pretty smart. <laughs> So, so, so I want to uh, finish up with the, the part three of your book, uh, From Ecological Constraints to Sustained Industrial Growth. This is, this is sort of topical with a lot of conversations going around, uh, around the ecological problems that we have today. So historically, um, what did we learn from what happened in the past? Um, well, you know, it's, it's a complicated story, right? Because part of... What I'm saying is that the kind of growth that we had in some of these core regions you know, wasn't sustainable without resource inputs from elsewhere, right? And obviously, if we think about the planet as a whole, we can't all be net import resource importers. So it does seem like 
if for a minute you put technology on the side, that you know, we've had two golden centuries in which both population and per capita income could increase dramatically, and that can't last forever. It's a zero-sum game, so to speak. If you if you put technology aside, it's a zero-sum game. Yeah, or maybe not zero, but it's at some point the piper has to be paid. Now, obviously, if you put really dramatic technological change back into the picture, you may be able to to stave this off. Can you stave it off forever? I don't know. Um, can you stave it off for a while? Could be. Um, but, you know, the other thing that I think we learned from looking at the past is there's not just the existence of the technology, right? The political will has to exist to use it, to say, we are not going to give you the option of offloading these ecological costs on somebody else. We are going to force you to internalize them. And then we hope that gives you the technology, you know, that makes you not only invent the technological solution, but actually implement it. Right? If you don't force the beneficiaries to bear the costs, you can have all the cool patents in the world. And obviously an awful lot of the politics of our current moment is what are the full costs of our current prosperity in ecological terms? They're hard enough to measure, but even once you measure them, how do, who should they fall on? Hmm. I see some sort of a segregation risk here. Um, Ken, I, I want to get your perspective on this. So, I mean, we have figured out how to segregate people forever, right? You know, last half a million years. Mm -hmm. um, we now have a way to segregate people by technology. So we could have, you know, sort of technology segregation, which is, you know, 1% of the world population have all the technology and 99% is left out in the cold. That mm. would be the, the most severe form right. of segregation that we have ever practiced, right? Mm -hmm. um, do you see that? And if you see that, what are the implications of that for the future? Um. I mean, I'm not sure I would say 1 and 99, but, you know, certainly I think there are grounds for worrying a lot that the response of, to oversimplify for a minute, the rich, right, will be you know, um, not to pay the full cost of solving our ecological problems, but again, to see if they can, if they can withdraw into a world where they don't have to share them, right? Whether that's done with migration restrictions on an increasing number of climate refugees, or whether it's done within a city by heavily armed gated communities. Um, you know, the scenario is gonna be different in different parts of the world and different depending on whether you're talking about rich versus poor countries 
or rich versus poor people within countries. But, you know, I do fear that the rich may wind up investing a lot in enhanced coercion rather than in um, doing everything possible to mitigate the problems themselves. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, some of them want to go to Mars and make yes, Mars exactly. great again. Um, and even short of that, you have some of these strange scenarios of like private islands. Um, you know, it's hard to know how seriously to take some of that, but obviously some people do take it seriously. Yeah, I understand, Ken, that New Zealand is becoming sort of a private island mm. <laughs> for many of the world's rich. Um, New Zealanders may not like that, but um, yeah. excellent. Yeah, this has been great, Ken. Thanks so much okay, for spending thanks. time with me. Yeah, now anytime. Thank you. Maybe right. uh, maybe we'll set up uh, some sort of a debate with Joe. Do you okay. think you're up for it? That, I would be up for that, yeah. Excellent. Okay. Thanks again. All right, good to meet you. Take care. Stay safe. Okay, you too. Bye-bye. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.